Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Prashan. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in a course on steampunk in the winter of 2022. Uh, the lecture was called Women, One Steampunk. So in the lecture on second wave steampunk, I talked about how I used the Wayback Machine to look at what books were at the top of the steampunk Goodreads list in 2009. It was William Gibson and Bruce Sterling's The Difference Engine, China Mieville's Perdido Street Station, and Ann and Jeff Vandermeer's anthology Steampunk. Now, some might wonder, like, why use Goodreads at all? Why would any of that matter? Well, this is something that I, I started using a few years back when I was teaching a course on magic realism. And people kept asking me if I was going to include any Neil Gaiman in the course. And I was like, Neil Gaiman? Why would I include Neil Gaiman in that course? And I, and I, you know, I would do web searches, sort of popular web searches, you know, magic realism books that you need to check out. And Neil Gaiman kept showing up on those lists. And I was like, Neil Gaiman doesn't write magic realism, at least not according to what it is, you know, by what the experts say. Um, so, you know, I'd been doing my secondary source research and reading what, you know, people who are considered experts on magic realism had to say about what that is. And I, th I thought, you know, I don't understand wh where this is coming from. And so I went, I went on Goodreads and looked at the magic realist lists there um, to see what, you know, what does, what do, most people think magic realism, and I'm, on the one hand, you have experts who say this is what it is, and then you have the people buying stuff, you know, and, and categorizing it as things. And this is all born out of, by the way, this particular kind of approach is actually born out of a response that Gail Carriger, who I'm going to talk about today, uh, had to a list of readings that I'd compiled for a speculative fiction course at McEwen University. And my first pass at it was, I put it up on Facebook and she said, well, that would be a great list for academics, but it's not a great list of what people actually read. And I was like, wow, yeah, that's so true. And it made me think about how academia often approaches um, the study of literature that, you know, we have course after course after course on all sorts of things, but I, I have yet to see a course on the romance novel, which is one of the most popular genres of fiction. So why is it that we don't teach that unless it's, unless it's by Jane Austen? Uh, so this is interesting to me. This is something that I think is worth uh, our attention, looking at how the perception of a genre or a subgenre or a um, category of books changes over time. And and we can we can talk about these sorts of things in a in a sort of um, abstract or theoretical way. But what I love about Goodreads is that it actually gives us an opportunity to you know to see numbers, to have some statistics, to get something that is arguably hard evidence or at least far more objective evidence than just sort of riffing on what we think reader response theory might be. I mean, if you want really serious reader response go check out what people on Goodreads have to say 
about particular books, and we can collate a lot of data based upon these numbers. And we, we can admit that there are potentially problems with the way that we're gathering that information, but when there's serious studies being done on human sexuality via dating sites... Why aren't we leveraging the opportunity that we have as scholars of literature to use something like Goodreads, where there's all this information, all this data, and we even have testimonials. Like, this is the sort of thing that you'd have to set up a massive study for, and you pay people to come in, and then they'd have to, re they'd have to read the books, and then you'd have to get their feedback. But what you get on Goodreads is you get that feedback without saying, we're studying you, right? There's none of that, that bias involved. There's all sorts of other biases at work, but that is not among them. Anyway, in 2009, we have these three books. We have The Difference Engine, we have Perdido Street Station, we have the Steampunk Anthology. And then in 2009, Gail Carragher's Solace is released, among other books. But we're just talking about Carragher at this point. Carragher's Solace. And why? Why do I want to just talk about Carragher's Solace? Because if you go to Goodreads today, some, what, 12 years later, 13 years later, and you look at the shelved steampunk books list. Shelved lists are people just, they, they read a book and then they, they get to shelve it as M reading, but they can also tick off other boxes for shelves they want to categorize it as. So they might categorize something like Solace as paranormal romance or romance or, you know, um, humorous or something like that. Many people categorizing it as steampunk. So many categorizing it as steampunk that it is number one on this list. China Mieval's Perdido Street Station, which was once among the top three, down at number 24. William Gibson and Bruce Sterling's A Difference Engine, the classic of steampunk, down at number 30. And the steampunk anthology by Jeff and Ann Vandermeer over on the next page. I'm only just looking at the, the first 50 books in this little study that I'm going to do out of 12,313. Now there is, I am genuinely interested in potentially going through all 12,313 of these at some point and drawing some conclusions about that. But for today, I just want to take a look at the top 50 because I think it's super indicative. I mean, top 10 lists. What do people really like? what has been super successful. And that isn't a guarantee of quality, but it is indicative of what people think a thing is. And what, you know, the way that we use language most broadly is the way we communicate. So an expert can push back on this and say, but that's because they don't really understand. They don't really understand what steampunk is. That's why they're voting this thing up to number one. I'll tell you, Perdido Street Station should be up at the top. And there are... Lots of people working in science fiction and fantasy who are huge fans of China Mievel. Um, and, you know, rightly so. Mievel's a great writer. I enjoy his stuff. I find his prose a little pretentious, but he's got some wild ideas and some cool concepts. Um, but he also has a very particular worldview that quite often aligns with what literary scholars want to be talking about in the classroom. Mievel allows you to talk about big, important things like politics and uh, ideology and like whether, you know, justice and fairness and all this sort of thing and like the way that we treat others. And, and those are worth 
paying attention to. This is not me being like, we should never talk about those things. But there's this sense in which China Mievel slots very easily into the kind of reading that a lot of literature courses are devoted to reading for meaning, reading for deeper meaning. We're going to talk about how this is, you know, uh, meaningful and the difference engine potentially along those same lines, although it's the kind of text that you can now problematize in terms of its representation of um, women. Uh, mostly, the, the book is mostly concerned with men and its representation of women is um, in some ways uh, regressive. Uh, whereas we could talk about the, the representation of women in Gail Carriger's Solace as progressive. But there are people who would say they don't want, like academics who would be like, I don't want to do that. Because Solace is silly. It's, 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 it's comedy. It's a romance. I can't take this seriously. This, this, is, this isn't worth our attention. This isn't worth scholarly attention. And uh, my pushback on that is that if we're not paying attention to what people are actually reading, what, what is it that we're doing in English departments? Is it just, um, is it just a book club? for the things that we, th like, this is the stuff you all ought to be reading, that sort of prescriptivism thing. Um, you, sh you should be exposing yourself to these big ideas. Um, maybe that's, maybe that's what we're about. I don't know. I, you know, I'm interrogating all of these things via this, this approach. Well, we've got Carragher up at the top and we're not just looking at Carragher as number one. Carragher is, is in several places along here. We can see, uh, looking at this list, soulless, changeless, blameless, etiquette and espionage, heartless, all up there in the top 10. And uh, we can break down that top 10 along with the top 50 to take a look at women writers and steampunk. And the reason that I'm focusing on women writers and the reason that I called this lecture Women One Steampunk is that because men dominated not only steampunk, but science fiction and fantasy at large for a very long time. And in science fiction, at least, when women came along, and, and it really saying women came along, there were women in, in science fiction before Anne McCaffrey, before Ursula K. Le Guin, um, doing what they did in the 1960s. But they would publish under pseudonyms, they would publish with their initials, C.L. Moore uh, did not go, hey, and by the way, I'm a woman, you know, loudly and proudly, um, working sort of under the radar to, um, to be able to work in a man's world. But Anne McCaffrey, Ursula K. Le Guin, when they came in, got to be shuffled off to another corner uh, called soft science fiction. Um, and there was an argument that it was like, well, that's because their science fiction is ultimately about the soft sciences. But Campbell's um, Who Goes There, the, the novella that, that um, was what The Thing is based on, John Carpenter's The Thing, is more... Uh, an interrogation of social and psychological concepts than it really is um, biological ones. Like it really, at the, at the end of the day, does not really get down into like how cells work and multiply. It's more like if I get taken over, will I even know it's me? If this alien uh, absorbs me and becomes me, will I even be aware? Now, you could write a narrative about that today that would be hard science involving neuroscience, but that's not what that original novella was. But McCaffrey, Le Guin, and a lot of other women, soft science fiction. You go over there and you be soft with the soft science fiction that you write. Um, and the same sort of thing started to happen with steampunk, where 
people came up with terms that were gendered for the kind of steampunk that Carragher was writing, that Priest, Sherry Priest was writing, uh, Melching Brook. Um, and they, you know, it was like, we're going to put these people over there and they will get to be this other punk. Um, and I resisted that and I continue to resist that to this day. Although at this point, I got to say, I don't honestly know that I, anyone needs me to be resisting that when we take a look at this list. So let's get into this list. Uh, Solus up at the top shelved 4,886 times as steampunk. I don't know much about statistics, but I think we're getting close to a statistically viable sample set here. Um, Leviathan in place number two by Scott Westerfeld, another one of the books that came out in 2009 and really began the second wave or announced the second wave of steampunk fiction, shelved 3,351 times as steampunk. So that's considerably less than 4,886 times. And then Carragher's next book, Changeless, uh, shelved 3,162 times as steampunk. So lots of lots of shelving going on here. If we take a look at how many times Carragher's books appear in the first 50 um, shelved uh, items on this list, and the reason I went for the first 50 is it's just the first page that you would come to on, on Goodreads, and you would scroll all the way to the bottom, and there you've, got, you've come to 50. And I thought, I'm going to stop there today rather than going on to do the you know, thousands more that are ahead. So this is a limited study, but it's indicative nonetheless. And especially because it includes the top 10 with, you know, thousands of readers weighing in on this. Gail Carragher has 11 books out of the 50, for, so 22% of that first page. She clocks in at number 1, 3, 5, 6, 8, and 9 in the top 10. Sherry Priest, who wrote Bone Shaker, which was another one of the books that, you know, along with Westerfeld's Leviathan, announced the second wave um, in 2009, uh, has four books on this list. Uh, so she's got 8% of the share and her bone shaker clocks in at number four. So we fill in one of the gaps that Carragher has left. I mean, Carragher's got most of the top 10, um, but uh, Priest fills in the gap between three and five. Cassandra Clare, author of the Mortal Instruments series, did some steampunk books set in the same universe called The Infernal Devices. And the first book in that series, Clockwork Angel, clocks in at number seven, filling in the gap between characters six and eight. She's got three books on the list for 6% of the share. Cassandra Clare was an established author, unlike Carragher, who was a complete unknown when she released Solus. Priest was also largely an unknown. She had a few books to that at that point, but not. she was not a name. She was not out there. Um, but Cassandra Clare certainly was when she began working on her steampunk uh, content. And then Melgine Brook has three books on this list for 6%. Her, uh, and the first book that appears on this list comes in at the number 10 spot. So in the top 10 of shelved steampunk books, only one male author, four women authors, four female authors. And I mean, we can get into the particulars of how gender isn't quite, you know, we're not just working with the binary, but today I'm just going to be working with it from that perspective for simplicity's sake. Um, so... You know, when I say women won steampunk, we're looking at the the women in the in the in the top ten have forty two percent of 
the the share, I guess we'd say, of of votes on in that top fifty. And if we look at women in general and not just those women, that number goes up to seventy. And then we, what we have remaining, and I've put the 70 over top of the women in this slide. Um, and then I have 26 way over on my side of the slide because I'm a guy. So the male authors on that list make up 26%, 26% of the top 50 of the shelved list, uh, which I trust a little bit more than the Listopia ones. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Um, but then the 4% in the middle is for books that were either authored or edited by men and women. So they, there was there was like they were either writing together or editing together or their anthologies that contain a mix of male and female writers. If we move over to Listopia books, the numbers change. But the reason that I don't trust Listopia li uh, data as much is because those lists on Listopia are created by users. And we can see with the best steampunk books list that whoever started it wanted very badly for everybody to adhere to a certain definition of steampunk. Wikipedia defines steampunk as a subgenre of fantasy and speculative fiction that came into prominence in the 1980s. And in the early 90s. The term denotes works set in an era or world where steam power is still widely used, usually the 19th century and often set in Victoria era England, but with prominent elements of either science fiction or fantasy, blah blah blah, like those found in the works of H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, etc., etc., technological developments, these other things. And it, it feels very much to me like a list that's going, this is what steampunk is, and don't put anything on this list, because it says right at the bottom, please only add books that fit the steampunk definition and have steampunk listed on the book's main genre page. Well, just because someone slaps the name on the cover doesn't make it steampunk necessarily, if you're going to be a gatekeeper. Because, um, I mean, you look on this list, this just kills me. H.G. Wells' is The Time Machine uh, is in the number five spot, and I'm like, this shouldn't, as far as I'm concerned, that shouldn't even be on the list. Uh, you, if you want to start a list that's called Steampunk Antecedents, and you can put that one on there. But, you know, if you're talking about books that came into prominence in the 1980s and 1990s, that one shouldn't even be on there. So I'm always a little bit suspicious of Listopia lists, but I wanted to include them just for fairness sake, and I wanted to include their data. So best steampunk books, uh, women writers only make up 40% of, of this. Um, and I, in this what I would be interested in doing is like actually looking at like other forms, the sort of broader lists of science fiction and fantasy to see how these compare um, to see like, you know, do we have a larger number of, of women writers in steampunk for one reason or another uh, 8% to the shared works and 52% for the men on the Listopia Best Steampunks list. Then we get the Listopia Best Popular Steampunk Books on Goodreads, and the number 52 now moves over to the women. 5% for the shared, 43% for uh, the men. But on both the last list and this one, Solus or uh, Carragher Solis and Cassandra Clare's Clockwork Angel continue to be in 
top spots, in the top 10 spots. Bone Shaker by Sherry Priest, still in the top 10 on that best steampunk books list. And then on this best popular steampunk books on Goodreads, just starting to read like <laughs> Protestant denominations where they're like, we're the first Anglican church of the such and such. Um, and this is like, how many, how many definitions, how many like different adjectives do you have to shove in front of this one to sort of, this is a different list than the other ones that you've been looking at. But best popular steampunk books on Goodreads, again, has Cassandra Clare and Gail Carriger up at the top, but now we've got Lindsay Lindsay Brooker's The Emperor's Edge, which I have not read and I'm I'm not familiar with. Um, moving out uh, Sherry Priest's Bone Shaker from top spots, but women with 52% of the share on this one. Let's take a look at another list. Best steampunk novels. What makes them best? I always wonder, like, what's the criteria here? Um, and I always wonder that, too, even when I'm, like, engaging with uh, other academics. Like, what makes a book um, the best example of whatever it is that you're studying. Like, uh, you know, people have asked me like, why didn't you include the difference engine in your course? You should have included the difference engine in your course. And I'm like, yeah, maybe I should have, but I've learned over the years that like trying to get students to read really long novels is a fool's errand. Uh, even English students are not, it's not that they're not interested in reading long books. It's just, if you're going to put difference engine in your course, three weeks, because it's that long. You should be allotting uh, three weeks, enough time for people to read it, do close readings of it. A week is not enough time to do that. That's just that's just drive-by reading. Um, and so if we're really going to take a look, a close look at, at works, then I don't think that we should be using like these these you know these great big vast tomes. The other side of this is that I'm looking at the the this information on Goodreads, and I'm like, is the difference engine as influential? as academics would like to think it is? Or is that just something that we've sort of assumed out of the same misguided attention that academia gave to cyberpunk? Because cyberpunk, like Mievel, was just full of those big ideas that we all wanted to be talking about in our classes. It was doing things that were like more literary and sophisticated in ways that align with how we normally read novels. Because science fiction and fantasy don't play by a lot of the same rules in terms of like what their focus on uh quality like what makes what makes a quality fantasy novel is very distinct from what makes a quality literary novel uh, it isn't necessarily going to be deep character development but instead the 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 generation of a secondary world a secondary fantasy world how do you or in science fiction what is the novum what's the new thing that you've introduced here what's the new technology or new alien species what what counterfactual concept are you playing with but cyberpunk seemed to align easier with the kind of stuff you'd be doing in other literary courses. And so there's a lot of academic attention that's been paid to cyberpunk. And I can't help but wonder, is that one of the reasons why the Difference Engine got any of the attention that it did from, from academics looking at steampunk? And I don't want to say that that's all the case, because I certainly know that in the case of um, Helena Esser, who, you know, is... As far as I'm concerned, Helena Esser is the steampunk scholar now. Uh, if I ever was, Helena Esser is the person who is now the steampunk scholar. Um, written so many great uh, academic articles, uh, just great stuff, and really good work on the Difference Engine. 
and sees it as a valuable uh, addition to the genre. But again, when I look at I look at these lists, I'm like, I'm not seeing people digging it. So if I'm wanting to approach steampunk as a popular genre or approach it in a way that is meant to study what it is and not what I think it should be, then this kind of information is valuable for me. But again, best steampunk novels, Carragher, Claire, Priest, in the top 10, and many women in the top 10, again, um, and why have I abandoned, you know, the percentages? Cause that takes an awfully long time. Uh, that's information that I'd love to, to, to go and, and gather another day. That's information that you as a listener, um, whether you're one of my students or not, that's, that's a study that, you know, we can all be part of. Um, but I think that this is one of the ways that we can use Goodreads to come to these sorts of conclusions, to draw attention, um, to the areas that we ought to be studying when we enter a new genre that's on the move, that is continuing to be a moving target that isn't like, you know, we're not looking at the romantic period where it's not happening anymore, um, or the Victorian period is not happening anymore. So when we study things like neo-Victorian fiction or magic realism or steampunk or whatever it might be, that is a modern genre, a modern category that continues to evolve. I think looking at things like Goodreads can help us to see the big picture because I remember when I was doing my um, dissertation, I was getting tons and tons of books for review, but they weren't necessarily the books that were gaining the most popularity. So I read a lot of steampunk that was sort of like, well, that was terrible. <laughs> and it, 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 as it turns out, it, it, it didn't, it didn't last. Uh, we'll get to something about that in just a second. But here on the best YA young adult steampunk books list, uh, we've still got Carragher, we've still got Claire, but here we get Cross, Katie Cross, um, and her uh, Steampunk Chronicles, the first book, The Girl in the Steel Corset. This was published through an imprint from Harlequin. So, romance. Definitely romance. Bone Shaker, it's still in the game on the best YA uh, steampunk books, but it's been dropped down now. Um, Katie Cross's series shows up on a number of these lists. All of the books are there. Uh, so it was quite popular. I remember reading Girl in the Steel Corset. It always felt a little bit like steampunk X-Men. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a ton of fun. Uh, again, not a really deeply serious book with all sorts of like big ideas. YA steampunk books. So the last list was another Listopia one, best YA steampunk books. Now we get the YA steampunk books as shelves. So again, the sort of thing that people just click. The Listopia, people make lists, and then they want you to come in and vote and add stuff to it, but it is initially curated. Whereas shelves are just curated by people deciding, I think this is that thing over there. And the list for YA steampunk books, uh, Carragher's Soul List drops and is replaced by Etiquette and Espionage, the first book of her Finishing School series, which on the other lists is there, but further down. Cassandra Clare's Clockwork Angel still up in the top, Katie Cross's Girl in the Steel Corset up in the top. And we look at all of these, and anyone who's read them knows they all contain romance. So let's take a look at the shelf for steampunk romance books. Top book on this shelf, Melgene Brook, who we've already seen. Melgene Brook's The Iron Duke, shirtless dude on the front cover. Um, maybe that book should have been called Shirtless. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just looking at Soulless, characters Soulless on the same page, and I'm like, The Iron Duke should have been called Shirtless. <laughs> I like my own jokes, okay? Um, 
And then you know, we look at all these. The, the, this list is very different. We've got Beck McMaster, who's appeared on some of the other lists, but not this high up on it. Um, Melgene Brooks uh, series is right up near the top entirely. Carragher appears here, but not as strongly as on other lists. But Carragher runs across all of these up at the top. And most of the top 10 of every one of these lists is dominated by women writers. And I think this is significant. I think it's something that we need to pay attention to because these books don't just appear on the steampunk romance book lists. They appear on the steampunk adventures list. They appear on the butt-kicking female steampunk list. There's a name for you. Um, but there they are over and over and over again. Um, in 2009, if somebody was going to have taken a bet on what the future of steampunk was going to be, I doubt they'd have said it was Carragher and Claire. I suspect they'd have been pissed off if anybody had suggested so. Some people were. I know because I engaged with those people. Um, had some arguments about it. And, like I've said, I've recommended Carragher and Priest and Westerfeld uh, consistently to people looking to write master's thesis, PhD dissertations, but they come back and they say it's not sophisticated enough, uh, there's not enough depth here, and my pushback is then you have to admit that steampunk isn't a deep genre. And, and then just at least acknowledge that and say that you had to go fishing around for whatever book was super deep. Now, I don't think that's actually true. And I also don't think that Carragher's works aren't looking at serious and important things. I think they are. But if we want women writers who are working with serious content, we need to look no further than the last lecture with Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda's monstrous graphic novel, monstrous comic book series. We could also look at Nissy Shaw's Everfair. It's an absolutely fantastic novel, but it's difficult. It's a tough novel. It's a little bit more like The Difference Engine. It's a genuine, um, genuinely rigorous investigation of alternate history in the Congo. Uh, steampunking of, um, out of African history. And I don't want to make it that broad, but just to clarify for people. Um, and I think it's a beautiful book. But it doesn't show up in these top lists. We don't see it being terribly popular. So, you know, maybe maybe that says something about what we do as readers, as humans who read, or just North Americans. Because we have to remember that, you know, uh, a lot of these lists, uh, the lists that I'm looking at anyway, are looking at these books in, uh, you know, the context of the English, uh, English language. What I also love about Goodreads as a space of research is that it gives us the opportunity to see how many times a book has been reprinted. And I think that's valuable as well, because if we have to find a really out of print book, like I've, I've had, I remember people saying like, this really obscure book that no one remembers and no one gives a crap about is, was really the, that's really where steampunk began. And I'm like, well, let's take a look at how popular that book was, how many times it was published, how many people would have had hands on it. I mean, like I can think that Karel Zaman is the bomb, um, but at the end of the day, I can't argue too too strenuously that Karel Zaman's films 
uh, you know, these these very strange stop motion uh, adventure films were more influential than Disney's Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. It would be asinine for me to argue so, but sometimes it's like people want to argue those things. What Goodreads can afford us uh, is the ability to see how many editions there are of a book. Uh, we take a look at Carriger Solus. There are fifty five editions. And many of those are in other languages. So once a book is brought into its second edition, we know that it's doing well. But if it gets published in other people's languages, that's another level of success. And I love looking at the covers from uh, these, 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 um, I don't want to say, I hate the word foreign, but at the same time, um, you know, this is the German co uh, cover. Um, and, you know, this is the, I love the Russian cover. I absolutely love the, this image of, um, the heroine and her her amour, her paramour, um, on the cover. It's very steampunk. They both got. She, she's wearing something that looks kind of like a bowler, and he's wearing a top hat, and it's got goggles on the top. I mean, this is drawn directly out of second wave uh, steampunk. Very comic uh, art, comic style art, which is similar to what I think is my favorite cover for Solus. The Japanese edition has a manga style cover. Uh, never mind that Solus was turned into a manga, uh, that there was a manga version of it that was serialized in, um, in Japan. And the only other steampunk books that were given that treatment, Cassandra Clare's, says a lot about the weight that those books carry. And so when we're studying a genre, when we're looking at something, I mean, we can go looking for the thing that people tell us, like, if you read this, it's all about this really important thing, really important thing with like capital R, capital I, capital T, really important thing. Okay, sure. Um, and then we talk about those really important things. But again, it's just, we're working out of a, a very prescriptive space. This is the way I think things ought to be. It's not that we should never talk about those things. It's just that I think that if that's the only place that we go in for our research, we're ultimately not really looking at the thing we say we're researching. Just like when Gail Carriger gave me crap for having this very academic list of science fiction books. You know that's not what people are really reading, Mike, she said. Same thing with steampunk. If you're doing a steampunk course and all you have on it is Blaylock, Powers, Jeter, and then you have the Difference Engine, call your course First Wave, first wave Steampunk because you are not studying steampunk in general. And I will readily admit that my focus on narratives in this little study is not indicative of steampunk widely, but it is indicative of steampunk as we would study it in English, where we study literature. We'd have to do a different sort of approach to look at, you know, what's the, what's the greatest steampunk film that was ever made? We'd want to go, you know, onto the equivalent of Goodreads, right? Um, for film. But when we were talking about really important things, I said, I don't really think ultimately that we aren't looking at really important things when we're studying Gail Carriger's novels. And when I, I've taught Carriger's work before, and I remember talking about like the way in which she imagines werewolves in America as metaphor for outsiders, for the disenfranchised, um, for potentially, you know, homosexuals, because they're treated in, 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 in lots of ways, like homosexuals have been treated in America, uh, like LGBTQ people have been treated. Um, Carriger's novels have been praised 
by the LGBTQ community for their portrayal of queer characters. Um, she's not nearly as progressive as some other people in her use of um, BIPOC characters, uh, people of color, but they are there nonetheless. Um, if you chart the flow of her writing, she becomes bolder and bolder as she gains what I would say is publishing power. Um, that at the outset, it, she's looking at a very long game. Um, at least that was my original assumption, although I've, I've read that, um, uh, you know, on her blog, she talks about how she wrote Solas sort of on a bet to just write a book that people would want to read, to be not an artist, but an artisan, um, to just look at the publishing industry as a job. And so, you know, in some of the same ways, probably, that I identified some of the stuff that I talked about today, Carragher went and looked and said, what are people reading? What do they like? And then she gave it to them. And when she gained enough power, just like Jules Verne, way, way back, when he wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, he wanted to give his character of Captain Nemo very particular, um, a very particular nationality. But his publisher wouldn't let him because... If he had, it would have pissed off the Russians, seriously. And they didn't want to do that because France now and France and Russia were allies. And the publisher was like, "We don't, we don't want to, we don't want to make enemies with people who are going to be buying our books because this is a business." But there came a point when Verne had enough clout to just say, "I'm going to make Nemo who I want him to be," and he changed from his original intention of making him an, a Polish aristocrat, and instead made him part of uh, the um, part, made him part of the Sepoy mutiny in India, that N Nemo had grown up under the British Raj, and this is why he hated England. And he did that at a point where he could. He had enough clout. Once Carragher had enough clout, she didn't have to, you know, sort of play safe and do the, the sort of thing that most uh, romance uh, publishers want their writers to do, um, and was able, was able to exercise those things. Really important things. They're there in Carragher's books. But I'd argue that the really important things that we could talk about from Carragher's books aren't the things that we will often gravitate towards in academic literary studies. And yet today, the day that I'm recording this, dawns with a world on the brink, or well over the brink, of global war, um, nuclear threat. And I think about something that that Gail said to me once. She said, I asked why she, why, why, why did she think her books were so successful? Why was she going from a complete nobody to an, a repeat New York Times bestselling author? You know, nearly every book she's published hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I said, why do you think that's the case? What is it that your books have that other steampunk doesn't? She said that when she started investigating what she might want to write about, she noticed that steampunk was gaining um, gaining influence, gaining attention, people were getting interested in it. But she noticed that most of the steampunk that was cool at the time, China Mieville, was quite dark. And she said that that really wasn't where she wanted to, to operate. And she said, I think that almost all of us, or I think she actually said all of us, I don't know, but most people want to laugh and want to love and when, again, going back to romance is the top fiction genre in terms of sales, she's right. But on a day when things are so very dark in the real world, I can't help but wonder why we don't 
teach or investigate or analyze why we read to escape, how we read, how we engage with fiction as a form of almost self-medication. I've been listening to the audiobook for Etiquette and Espionage in preparation for teaching it next week. It's one of Carragher's finishing school books. And it makes me laugh. And every time I laugh, I know from the hard sciences, <laughs> I know from neuroscience, that I feel better, that, that it's good for my mental health for me to laugh. And as I listen to the book and I sign the fictional contract and I fall a little bit in love with the characters, I know that despite the fact that I'm not really falling in love, my brain is engaging with the same sort of chemicals that are produced when we do fall in love. It's one of the reasons that romance is so enjoyable. It's why it's so pleasurable to watch or to read. It's why we can, you know, and when I say we, I mean us as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a culture. Um, reading formulaic book after book after book after book. I was in a used bookstore once. I watched a woman come in with a box of Harlequin romances. So tiny little slim Harlequin romances. Plunk! Down on the counter. The guy goes, hey, and called her by her first name. Just go ahead. You know the routine. One for every two you brought in. So it's a two for one deal. This is a great big box. They were all Harlequin romances. Did she go to diversify her reading? No. She went right over to the romance section. Just doop, 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 doop. And I know from um, friends who are authors who have tried to get into writing for Harlequin or who were approached to do it, that they have a very, very serious boilerplate template that they're like, this is the convention you follow. So see if you can write a story in this that feels a little fresh. Why would people read those over and over again? I want to know. And I think neuroscience has the answer for us. We like to fall in love. It's how our, how our species gets perpetuated. But if we can be tricked by the lie of fiction into falling in love, that's an enjoyable ride, isn't it? And Carragher's books are about love and laughter. And those are really important things. And so for everyone who's working on a dissertation or a master's thesis or maybe a paper in my course, don't forget that those are two of the most important things in the world. To be able to make someone laugh or to make someone fall in love when they're not really happy or they don't have an actual person there to fall in love with. When the world is on the brink of disaster and we just take a few moments to escape into a world of werewolves, and ghosts, into a world of vampires who love really good fashion. I mean, the opening of Solace will forever to me be one of the funniest things I've ever read. That a vampire attacks the, the heroine, and her response isn't, oh no, a vampire, it's, you didn't ask politely. A joke made on the manners of polite Victorian society. I'll always love that opening. Um, but they're, they, they might be comfort food. They might be comfort food. But we want to stop and consider, you know, why we aren't studying the things that comfort us so in fiction, in film, in the beautiful lies that we create in steampunk, in science fiction, in fantasy, in romance. So, when I say women won steampunk, I've got hard data to demonstrate it. And then, after all of that, I also have what I think are really good reasons for why we should be studying it. 
why we should be paying close attention to it, and why we shouldn't be disregarding it in favor of what we might consider the really important things.